Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This week's episode is going to blow your mind. And then it's going to end up helping you blow your husband's mind or your partner's mind in the bedroom. Yeah, I'm talking about sex. This week's guest is Jessica O'Reilly, also known as Sex with Dr. Jessk. She is a sex and relationship expert and the founder of Happier Couples Incorporated. She provides relationship education online and through retreats to couples all across the globe. She works primarily with entrepreneurs and corporate executives to take their relationships from good to great. And guys, this woman is a force. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. I am blown away by all of the take-homes from how to keep the spark alive in your relationship to how to improve your sex life, to how to communicate your needs to your partner, how to figure out what your sexual needs actually are, to what to do if you just do not have that sexual desire that you wish you had. This episode is jam-packed with tips that are sure to improve your relationship and your relationship with your partner in the bedroom. Jess also talks about how talking about our bodies and consent and eventually sex with kids from a really young age, in obviously an age-appropriate way, helps to instill confidence and sexual responsibility in our children. We are literally covering it all. And I have to say, this episode might be one of my favorite ones yet. So without further ado, let's just dive right in. Hey guys, it's Jamie Scrimger here, second wife, stepmom of three, and mom of one. And you're listening to my podcast, where we talk about all things motherhood, stepmotherhood, and living a kick-ass life. If you're ready for raw and real conversations and are striving to live your very best life, then you are in the right place. Every week, I'll provide you with tips and strategies and mindset shifts to inspire you to live your own version of a kick-ass life, while bringing you along as I create my own. Jess, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Happy to be chatting with you too. Yeah. You know, I was telling my husband this morning that I'm talking to a sex expert today and he just kind of looked at me and I was like, yeah, it's going to be a good, juicy conversation. So, you know, before we dive in, why don't you give us your elevator pitch? What, give us the lowdown on what exactly you do. Yeah, I help couples have happier relationships, whatever that means to you. And I, I do that through my podcast and through live speaking engagements and workshops. Yeah. And you are all over, like you are doing speaking engagements and retreats and you are experts online and, you know, on television shows, like you definitely, you know, it isn't just about sex, but I love how you normalize the conversation because people don't talk about sex. It's just, it still seems like this, you know, even when I say it out loud, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it's just not mainstream conversation. That's true. And in North America, we don't like to admit that things are difficult. I noticed, you know, when I was in India a couple of weeks ago, there's more of an openness to saying, hey, you know what, this is tough for us, or this is a challenging topic, or this is taboo. And I think we could learn a lot from many of the Eastern countries with regard to just admitting that we feel vulnerable, that we feel nervous, that we feel uncomfortable, that we feel not good enough sometimes. Yeah. And do you think that our society in general is just getting better at being more real or where do you think we're at there? I think it depends on the age group. I think that there's a lot of pressure for, um, for let's say folks over 35, over 40, there's a lot of pressure to be everything, to conform to, you know, being a sexual superhero, to also being a super mom, 
to also being a super friend and a super community member. And I think that if you look at folks under, say, 35 or under 40, there is a tendency to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about what we want, what we're comfortable with, set boundaries. And that might be saying, hey, I don't really want to be in a relationship. Or that might be saying, hey, I want to be in a relationship and I want to have multiple partners. Or that might be giving yourself permission to say, you know what, I'm not really into sex and that's okay too. So I think with younger folks, there's a broader range of what is acceptable, what we can embrace. And I think that, you know, older generations can can learn from younger generations as opposed to oftentimes looking and saying, oh, it's so much worse or there's so much more sexually, uh, you know, explorative or, you know, they're having sex at a younger age when in fact the data doesn't say that that's the case at all. So I think there's a lot of learning to be done from uh, young people's willingness to to embrace a broader spectrum of sexual identities and sexual practices. Yeah. And to just live the life that they want to be living. Like I do find there's a lot of, yeah, like you say, boundaries and people are just saying, this is what I want and this is, it's okay for me. I don't need to do what everyone else is doing. Exactly. There are, you know, it used to be that the most question I got was some permutation of, am I normal? Is this okay? And I think with younger folks, Yes, of course, everybody needs reassurance. We're still social beings. We still want to be a part of the social fabric, but I don't think it's as important. I think the question is now, how can I make this work for me rather than looking for external sources of validation? Mm -hmm. Now, how did you start? How did you become an expert in sex and relationships? Like, how did you get on this career path? Really, it was an accident. I was a high school teacher downtown Toronto, and I saw the gaps in a system where we, we really weren't addressing the needs of the students. And more importantly, we weren't supporting teachers to teach this really difficult, controversial subject. So I went back to do my doctoral work in training teachers to deliver effective sex ed. So that is my passion. It's not what I do for a living, because you can't really make a living at that. But I do lots of volunteering with, with the schools, with the school boards, with the pre-service training for teachers, and even some of the in-service training for teachers. Wow, that's so interesting. It's interesting how many people have just fallen into their career paths by accident, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I so I speak primarily with corporate groups. That's what I do for a living. So I travel and I speak with either groups of entrepreneurs or groups of, of corporate executives. So uh, they're CEOs, part of a membership organization around the world. And that was just, you know, a lucky call five or six years ago that translated into moving from country to country every week and getting to work with these kind of exciting, powerful, diverse set of people. Wow, that is amazing. What a, you yeah. know, what a, you know, shift in what you thought you were doing and or thought you were going to be doing and wow, you were definitely watching your videos on your Instagram. You are so wise in what you say and how you deliver it. So I'm so excited to hear about the tips that you have for our community today. Awesome. Now, you just started talking about um education in schools. Before we dive into relationships and that kind of thing, when do you think that us as parents should start having the conversation about sex and the birds and the bees and all of that with the kids? Because, you know, we're in the teenage years and tween age and all of that stuff. And it's it's just a tricky conversation to navigate with your kids. Well, from day one, if you can start talking uh, about consent, if you can start talking about bodies, if you can be honest about physical affection from the time that they're babies, it's actually good practice for you because you're the one that makes 
makes it awkward, right? It's not really the kids. If you wait until they're teenagers, yeah, they're going to feel awkward. But if when they're babies you're and you're changing them, you can get comfortable saying, I'm cleaning your penis, or I'm wiping your butt, or I'm wiping down your, le- your vulva. If we can get comfortable with that language from day one, it's going to make those conversations easier. And then people often think that, you know, we're talking about sex or having the talk. But there is no talk. It has to be an ongoing talk. And the best time is when they start asking questions to be as honest as you can at an age appropriate level. So if they're, you know, two years old and they ask about a penis or they ask about a vagina or they ask about a a butt to just be open with those terms from the get go is going to be not only affirming that they have autonomy and power in their own bodies and help to protect them from, you know, anyone who perhaps wants to cross a line with their bodies, but it's also going to help normalize the conversation so that when they get older and they ask, you know, how did you get a baby in your tummy? You'll be able to explain that there is this thing called intercourse and a sperm fertilizes an egg and that's how you make a baby and it's growing in your uterus. And when they ask how it's going to come out, it's okay to say that it comes out of your vagina. All the research shows that talking about sex doesn't make kids want to run and have sex. Even when we look at the high school age or the preteen age, the more we talk about it, the more likely they are to make healthy, empowered decisions. There's there's a wealth of evidence showing that comprehensive sex education, so the more information that's accurate that we give the more likely they are to even delay sex. Abstinence education does not work. And I know that parents can get kind of hysterical that their kids are are sexual. But what you have to remember is that this is just a natural part of life. Does that mean that you want them to be going out and having all the sex? Not necessarily, but they're going to make the decisions that they make on their own. So the more you can empower them with confidence, the more you can have conversations about consent from when they're five years old. If, if, you know, an aunt or an uncle wants to give them a, a hug and they don't want a hug, they have a right to say no with their own body. They have autonomy over their body. So oftentimes sex ed isn't about sex itself. It really is about empowering them to communicate, to set boundaries, to know what they want and to, to feel like they have, you know, agency over their own bodies. Wow. That just gives me a whole new perspective on conversations that need to be had. You know, we have a a daughter, she's five, just on an ongoing basis. That is so helpful, Jess. Well, can I add one quick thing there? Yeah. For for a five-year-old, what's going to happen is they're going to see things on TV. They're going to hear things in songs. And those are what we call the teachable moments. So use those pop culture moments to ask them, well, what do you think? What do you know? Do you have any questions? Those are kind of where I begin because the way you talk to a five-year-old is not the way you talk to a 12-year-old is not the way you talk to a Mm 16-year-old. But if you can be opening up the floor so that they're comfortable hearing, hey, do you have any questions about that? Or how do you feel about that? Because anything they feel is fine. If they see people kissing on TV and it excites them, that's okay. If they see people kissing on TV and it grosses them out, that's okay too. As long as you explain to them, you know what? Some people, some adults and teenagers feel drawn to be physically affectionate with people that they love. And that's normal and that's healthy. And you don't have to do that, but you may want to someday and keep asking questions. Yes. Yes. So good. Now, say you haven't been open, you know, we haven't been openly talking about sex and you're at that teenage stage. How would you suggest navigating it from there? 
So if you've waited till they're teenagers, you're really, really late. Um, They've already probably seen porn. They've already discussed it with their friends. They've already seen lots of sex in the media they consume. And I say always go to the media they're consuming. So if you can just sit and watch a show with them, um, I think that you're going to see conversations, interactions, relationships, sexual scenarios where you can gauge what they're thinking, take a pulse on what they're feeling, uh, and create an opening to maybe have a conversation. Because we call this a third-party discussion, because you're not talking about them and their sex life. You're not talking about you and your sex life. You're talking about these fictional characters. So if you're watching, you know, I, I don't even know what's a popular show right now, but if you're watching a, a, a HBO show or a Netflix show together and you see people interacting, that's an opportunity to say, like, what do you think about that? Or how do you feel about that? Or, wow, that makes me uncomfortable. And be honest about your own boundaries. And if you've, if you've, for you know, lack of a better term, screwed up and not spoken to them about this yet and you want to fix it, be honest about it. Say like, listen, this is really tough for me. My parents never talked to me and I never wanted to make that mistake with you, but, I, but I, I did, I've, I've been nervous. I feel uncomfortable. Showing your own vulnerabilities is disarming and telling them that you're uncomfortable gives them permission to also say, hey, you know what? Yeah, this makes me uncomfortable too. Are you necessarily going to be the go-to person In some cases you will, and in other cases you won't, and that's okay. But if you can admit to your own limitations, it can open up the lines of communications in a whole new way. Yeah, because it does get uncomfortable as a parent. Um, I'm not having these conversations, um, but I know that a lot of people are, and they're at that stage, and that's the position that they're taking in their family. So yeah, I think that's, you know, I think in all areas, you it's okay to tell your kids when you're uncomfortable or when you're feeling nervous or when you kind of just, you know, feel a little bit out of your comfort zone. So that is so helpful. Thank you for that. I want to switch gears and start talking about relationships and marriages. Um, what tips do you have for couples who are trying to keep that passion alive in their relationship? Like life is busy. There's kids, there's work, there's responsibilities, there's stress. And at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of us are just tapped and so many relationships are hot at the beginning and passionate. And you think, Oh, we're never going to let the spark die. And then, you know, life happens and you kind of just hit this plateau. Do you have any advice on how to keep the passion alive? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you have to know that it's normal for passion to fade. You're not supposed to feel that same intense desire that you felt when you were only two weeks, two months, or even two years in. And there are a number of reasons for this. Like the first is chemical. The chemicals just simply fade when there's not the same degree of novelty, not the same degree of risk, not the same degree of the unknown. And uh, so we have to do things to kind of reinvigorate those passion chemicals. So we think about adrenaline. We think about fluctuating serotonin levels and dopamine levels. And so one way you can do that is simply by being a little bit more playful, by being a little bit more flirtatious, by having a good time. Because if you spend all your time talking about your kids, your work, and your schedules, and I say that's the death of passion in relationships when your conversation becomes reduced to family, kids, work, and money, and your schedules, what you're going to do today and what you're going to do tomorrow, if you only talk about those things It's just not that exciting. So think about ways that you can shift from talking about the mundane to actually, you know, having fun with another, being a little flirtatious, touching more often, being physically affectionate, sending them videos or photos or texts that you think will make them laugh or even blush, surprising them, um, complimenting them. 
staring at them, looking at them like a piece of meat or tofu, if that's what you're into, (laughs) to really just, you know, see them as an animal. And so I call this eroticizing your daily interactions. And sometimes people misinterpret this to think that they need to make everything sexual, right? I always joke, like, if I'm eating a banana, I don't want to hear my husband say, oh, yeah, Jess, you eat that banana. Like, that's obnoxious. I just mean, be a little (laughs) playful with me. Remember that, you know, I'm not just your roommate. I'm not just a co-parent. I'm not just a business partner. I'm the person that, you know, I'm probably the only person you have sex with in most cases. So we have to make it more playful on the daily. And then the second thing to understand is that if you wait until you're in the mood to have sex, you may never have it. And that's because desire doesn't necessarily occur spontaneously, especially once you've gotten into a routine of a long-term relationship. So sometimes you have to get aroused first and then you experience desire. And most people think that they need to experience desire and then do something to get aroused. But it's actually the other way around. If you get into bed and you're not in the mood for sex, sure, some nights you're just going to go to sleep. But if you know that you want to want sex, even though you don't want sex, sometimes you have to touch yourself. You have to fantasize. You have to tell your partner to do something for you so that you get physically aroused. And then the mental or emotional or psychological desire for sex follows. And one of the big things I think people fall into is waiting for their partner to initiate sex. And so the couples I see who are still having really hot sex after 10, 20, 30, and even more years, they they take turns initiating sex. They make sure that both partners are playing a role in initiating because if it falls on one partner's shoulders, that person is the one who's stuck dealing with a rejection. That person eventually gets frustrated and then you stop having sex altogether. And then you want to think about injecting novelty into your sex life, Um, you know, whether that's trying a new lube or trying a new toy. There's a new toy out called the WeVibe Moxie, and it's I'm pretty excited about it. It actually sold out when they launched it because it's a panty vibe. And it has a tiny little magnet that holds it inside your underwear. And it comes with an an app. You can give your partner permission to control it from their phone. So maybe you play with something like that. Like as the holiday season approaches and you have to go out to all of these parties. And, you know, the holiday season in other countries is, is a time when people really relax and reconnect with their family and get in tune with themselves. But the holiday season in North America is a time of stress because it's an added financial pressure added responsibilities around cooking and cleaning and hosting. And so how do you break break that pattern besides saying no more often to things? But how can, maybe it's you play. You play with a toy, like one of those toys you can wear out to a, to a party or wear at a family gathering. Um, and it's your own little secret. It doesn't mean you have to have an orgasm at the dinner table. We're not trying to be, you know, inappropriate or cross lines here. But just knowing that that secret is there, knowing that it's something you share with your partner, can add an element of risk into the relationship to reignite the spark. And when we, when I say the word risk, that's probably one of the most important things in relationships. We're so focused on getting comfortable and understanding one another and being predictable that we lose the excitement because we want risk. We want something that feels unsure. That's the reason when you meet someone new and you get a little crush on them, it feels way more exciting than your partner. It's because you're dealing with the fear of rejection. You're dealing with the fear that things will go wrong. You're uncomfortable. So you need to do things to in your relationship to lay the foundation so that you have such a happy, safe, loving, comfortable relationship that you can actually go do things that feel a little risky together, whether it's using that sex toy or talking dirty, or, you know, maybe you go to a a strip club, or maybe you end up going to a sex club one day, or maybe you just talk about these things and never do it. But if you don't inject risk into your relationship or some 
element of feigned risk, uh, you're probably not going to ever get the passion back. We need risk to be excited and to, to bring our bodies into a slight state of hypervigilance, which is exciting. Yeah. So it really always, it comes down to just being deliberate about it. Like you need to not just wait for things to happen. Like you need to kind of take control of your sex life so that you can get to that place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you wait for it to happen, it will never happen. I always say it's like going to the gym. I'm never going to wake up and, well, I know there are people who do, but good for you. But <laughs> most of us are not going to wake up and be like, oh, on a cold, wet day, I feel like going to the gym and like getting my hair all sweaty and then going to work. No, nobody really feels that way. But once you go, you're like, man, I'm really glad I did that. I'm reaping all the benefits. So it's the same thing with sex if the sex is good. And so that's another thing. Sometimes we stop having sex because the sex just isn't that good. So if it's not good, it's your job to speak up and make it good. It's not your, your partner's job to be better in bed because everybody's better is different. So you need to teach your partner what you like. So how do you suggest having that conversation? Because I do think that, you know, say you are not feeling like your partner is, you know, meeting your needs in bed. How do you communicate that to them without hurting their feelings? Yeah, I mean, I, f I think first and foremost, you start with the positive. You say something like, oh, I really loved when we did this thing, or I love the way you kiss me, or I love the way you do X, Y, and Z. And then you make a request and you say, you know what, I'd love if we could try this, or I'd love if you do this to me, or I'd love if if uh, we could try this together. Because most of us wait until we're really frustrated to talk about these sensitive subjects, and then it comes out as an accusation, or it comes out in a way that feels demeaning, or it comes out in a way that feels aggressive. So you need to talk about sex regularly, not just when something is wrong. Um, and I, I say start with the positive and then make your request, and always make an offer too. Always say, like, what can I bring to the table? Because it's easy to say, oh, my partner never does this, or my partner does this wrong. But don't pretend that you do everything right, because you don't. I don't. I have all the information at my fingertips, and I still suck at, for example, initiating sex. I still struggle with it. And so I have to acknowledge that and say, you know what? This is on me as well. This can't just be on my partner. Mm -hmm. So you talked about toys. So say you have a mm -hmm. couple who's pretty vanilla and they want to spice things up. They're really kind of trying to get the spark back in the relationship. What's the best, like, where's the best place to start? Like, what would be the best toy to kind of dabble into, uh, if you will? Well, I, to pick one specific toy would be difficult, but I would suggest start with something really small. So don't start with something kind of overwhelming. Um, there's a little bullet vibe called the Tango, which is a good idea. In fact, the one I mentioned earlier, the Moxie, I think is a great start because it can be used as a bullet vibe or it can be used in your underwear. You can control it with your hands or you can connect it to the app. So I would say the Moxie would be a really great place to start for people who are brand new to this. Um, if, if you live in a big city, there's always is going to be a sex positive store you can go into. So for example, like if, if you're in Toronto, you could go to Good For Her. If you're in New York, you could go to the Pleasure Chest. And these are not raunchy adult stores, like the old school style. They're actually education and workshop spaces where the people who are there are know as much about sex toys as I do, if not more, and are happy to kind of answer questions and help make you feel comfortable. Some of them even have women-only hours. It's the type of place where you feel like you're walking into the Bay or you're walking into Macy's. It doesn't feel like you're walking into some deep, seedy place. So if, if you're in a large 
city, you're definitely going to have those sex positive stores across the country. We have like the traveling trunk. Uh, we have Venus Envy in Canada. And then the pleasure chest has locations all across uh, across most of North America. So I suggest if you if you are going to go to a bricks and mortar, you go in there. Um, if you're going to go online, I would say don't start with Amazon because they have a lot of kind of junky stuff, a lot of knockoffs there. Um, I can suggest a couple of brands. One is called Crave, uh, C-R-A-V-E, and it's actually jewelry that doubles as little tiny vibrators. So they have the Crave Vesper, which you wear around your neck and nobody would ever know what it is. Uh, so that's kind of a nice gift for a partner. And it's run by a, you know, a female founder, a female design engineer. Uh, so Crave is a good one to look at. WeVibe would be another good one to look, look at, a Canadian company founded by a couple with no background in the adult industry, but they re really revolutionized it. That's WeVibe.com. Um, and then, you know, if, you, if you're looking at um, something a little bit different and you don't want a vibrator, you want something that's more focused, for example, on the clitoris. I don't love the name of the brand, but they're an incredible brand. And they're also started by a couple in Germany. They didn't come from the adult field. It's called Womanizer. So you can look at the womanizer.com and it, they use what's called pleasure air technology. So it's tiny little waves of air that create a sensation that's a little overwhelming and it almost feels like suction, but it's not suction. Um, and their whole range of toys, like if you go on those sites, each of them has lots of different products. So that gives you a lot to choose from in terms of high quality toys. Wow, you know your stuff. That's some great resources for someone who wants to get started. And I, I'll link a couple of those in the show notes for people if they want to take a look and just kind of peek over. Now, I do find in relationships, especially for women, getting aroused or feeling connected with your partner, it's not all about the physical. Like there is that emotional component, which is it true that that's more of a thing for females than it is for, for men? Like, cause I know if there is all of this stuff that needs to be done and, you know, dishes around the sink and I feel like, you know, maybe my partner hasn't been helping me out and all of those kind of things, I find it hard to want to do it. Like I do find it hard to get to that place. Whereas I find with him and like just men in general, like they just, they're, they can shut it off and really kind of, it's a, it's a physical thing for them. Is, is that in our head or is that, actual fact? I'd say it's twofold. I'll say number one, culturally, we know that women bear the brunt and do a disproportionate percentage of unpaid labor. And so that means we bring more of our work home. So from a lifestyle perspective, it's harder for us to compartmentalize. No matter what, even with millennials who say that equality and equity in relationships is of paramount importance to them, we know that once you have, once there are kids in the picture, in heterosexual relationships, women are still doing a disproportionate amount of the work. And that means that we're more emotionally and physically tired. And that makes it more difficult to just get into our carnal needs. So number one, there's that. Number two, I do think that overall, we do see women attaching a greater emotional value or relational value to sex. And that doesn't mean that that's evolutionary necessarily or innate. It could also be cultural because we've been told that we should. But I really want to emphasize that more men are like that than we realize. So more men deal with low sexual interest 
than people acknowledge. So some recent data suggests that about 28% of men experience low sexual desire to a degree that they find it distressful. When I was in practice and I would see couples, the number one issue that they'd come to me with was low sexual desire or differentials in sexual desire. And in 50% of the cases that I saw, it was in heterosexual context, the man who wanted sex less often than the woman. So that's not uh, hard data. That's just the anecdote of what I saw. And that might be more reflective of people who are going to get help. But I just really want to emphasize that it's people of all genders who tie their emotional needs and their relational needs to sex. Um, You know, I have a partner, for example, who needs to be really, really relaxed to have sex. And I'm not like that. And he, he is. And so it's not necessarily strictly along gender lines. It basically varies from person to person. So having said that, um, I I suggest that every person get to know their core erotic feeling. Um, And I have a podcast on the core erotic feeling you can go and have a listen to. I can send you the link for that. But your core erotic feeling is the feeling that the emotion that you need to experience in order to get in the mood for sex. So for example, in order to have sex, I need to feel really loved. Or in order to have sex, I need to feel really relaxed. Or in order to have sex, I need to feel a bit of a challenge. Or in order to have sex, I need to feel really sexy and desired. And everybody's core erotic feeling is different. And you need to figure out what is the feeling, the emotion that you attach to getting in the mood for sex. That doesn't mean that every time you're relaxed, you want sex, but it is the baseline of, and it's a necessity to having sex. And once you work that out, you can look at your elevated erotic feeling, which is that emotion that takes sex to the next level. And that's why, for example, some people are really turned on by by risk. Some people are turned on by pain. Some people are turned on by threat. Some people, kinky folks, can even be turned on by humiliation. And that might not appeal to you because it's not your elevated erotic feeling, but you've got to figure out what is the emotional underpinning for sex for you. And then you need to make yourself feel that way. It is your job to facilitate that emotion in your life. It is not your partner's. You can teach them and they can support you and they can help to make you feel that way. But let's say your core erotic feeling is, oh, I need to feel really like sexy. Okay. It's your job to make yourself feel sexy. You need to do the things in life, whether that's movement, whether that's eating differently, whether that's simply more positive self-talk when it comes to your body, it is on you. And then, of course, your partner can support you and help to make you feel sexy. And you need to be really specific in telling them that what that means. Because I might say, oh, I want to feel sexy. And my partner might say, all right, I got you and smack my butt and say, nice piece of meat. And to me, that's not what I want. I want him to look me up and down. I want him to use his words. I want him to make eye contact. So Everybody's core erotic feeling is different and the way we evoke emotions in other people is different. So you need to figure that out for yourself and that will probably change your relationship with sex. And also once you teach your partner, change your relationship with your partner. Wow. Okay. That is, you're blowing my mind right now because that is something that I've never really thought about. Like, how do you find out your core erotic feeling? What if you just hear that and people are listening, they're like, well, I don't even really know where to start there. So I would think about a couple of things. Think about uh, a time where sex felt really, really good for you. So we call that a peak erotic experience. And in that peak erotic experience, how did you feel? Right? Because sometimes we think it's about the way a partner approached us or a technique that they tried or the way that they looked. Uh, But 
But really, it's the emotional underpinnings of every experience that make it memorable, lasting, and meaningful. So did was it the risk involved? Was it like, I don't know, you snuck away at a holiday party? Was it that you felt really loved because they had turned off their phones and you had spent the entire day together and you had been laughing and you had been reminiscing? Like, was it the feeling of feeling loved? Was it a feeling of a little bit of, of threat? I don't know. Maybe you were doing it out on a balcony. So you have to think about the times that really um, turned you on, where you felt most at ease, where you felt most excited, and then think about what feelings were attached to that. That's a good place to start. Yeah, that is so good. Now, what if you and your partner just have such different ways of going about, like you want to have sex in a different way or different core erotic feelings, right? Or you want to do different types of activities when it comes to sex. How do you suggest that people who are just kind of on different ends of the spectrum still show up for their partner, but still feel comfortable themselves? So actually, I think the core erotic feeling is a great place to start because let's say, I don't know, let's say I want to go out into the forest and my fantasy is like all these people watching and it's pouring rain and I'm being ravaged by three, three people. All right. So let's say that's my ultimate fantasy. And my partner's ultimate fantasy is like roses and the two of us and a lifetime of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so are we going to go out into the forest with all these people watching and three people taking care of my body? Probably not. But if I can go to the underlying feeling attached with that, like maybe it's just the feeling of being really admired and desired. And so maybe he can help to play into that with like his language or the way he approaches me or even just fantasy talking about how he wants to share that with me. So there are always feelings you can extract from a fantasy. And then there are always elements of the fantasy you can break down. I always say that like, if you can learn to talk dirty and just talk about your partner's fantasies, you can be the laziest physical lover in the world. You never have to get on top if you can talk their ear off, right? Like I can talk to my partner about how all these other women want him and how I want to share him and how good it'll feel and how they all want his dick and how hot it is and how nothing else will do. And then I can turn over at the end and say, don't even think about it. And we can have a laugh. So if you can bring your ultimate fantasies just into talk in the bedroom, that's a nice place to start. I have a TED talk called Monogamish, and I talk about how oftentimes, because monogamy isn't working for most people, that's the reality, like the data says that it ultimately fails. But we can, we don't have to all have open relationships because that's not the ideal for most of us either. Only 12% of Canadians consider an open relationship their ideal relationship format. Only 20% of North Americans have even tried it, according to the data. So there's got to be this space between monogamy and consensual non-monogamy or open relationships. And I call it the monogamish space, like where you'd maybe talk, but you don't touch or you think, but you don't do. And, and so I think we just need to be a little bit more creative with our relationships, just the way we are in every other realm of our life. Like people will come and say like, oh, I hurt my back. What sex position is better for me? And I'm like, well, I don't know what feels good, right? Like if, if you're riding a bike and the seat feels too high, you probably lower it. So we don't need to overthink it. You're the expert in your own life. You're the expert in your own body. You're the expert in your own emotional needs if you spend time on them. So if you don't spend time figuring out what you like physically, how the hell are you supposed to teach your partner? If you don't spend time thinking about your own emotional literacy and your emotional needs, how can you expect your partner to fulfill them? And that's why relationships fail because our needs are 
are not fulfilled. Our expectations are not fulfilled. But oftentimes we have expectations and we don't even convey them to our partner. We haven't even put them into concrete terms for ourselves. And so that's the work that I do with couples when I do my workshops. We're creating relationship plans so that you have a better idea of what you want out of the relationship, how you can give it to yourself and how you can request it from your partner in a, in a way that will be fruitful. Yeah. And it keeps going back to just being deliberate. Like things just don't happen when it comes to relationships, whether you're talking about sex or you're talking about communication or showing up as a team, parenting, all of those things. Like, I think there's this misconception that marriage or relationships or just anything is easy, but you need to be having those conversations so that you can take it to the next level. Absolutely. I think I think romance is the problem. It's this notion that you find the right person. You don't find the right person. You meet someone with whom you're fairly compatible, and then you cultivate compatibility. You become the right people for one another. But we have this notion that if it was meant to be, it will be. And that's absolutely not the case. Your relationship will not work on its own. Your relationship will not work because of fate. Your relationship will work because you put effort in. And that's what compatibility entails, being willing to put in a similar amount of effort to make this relationship work. And if you're not willing to budge on your, you know, your sexual needs, if you're not willing to budge on sexual frequency, if you're not willing to budge on communication, if you're not willing to budge on how you spend money, you're not going to find common ground because you're never going to find somebody who perfectly aligns with you. Oh my gosh, that is so good. Jess, thank you so much. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I know that this podcast is going to help a lot of people. I have a lot of conversations with couples who I work with and stepmoms that I work with who just feel like they cannot get on the same page with their partner about romance because in sex, because of all of the extra stress in their life. So this is definitely going to help take them to the next level, if you will. Awesome. Happy to hear that. All right. So we're going to link everything to do with you and your platform and everything that you offer, your TED Talk podcast, all the things um, in the show notes for everyone. And thank you so much, Jess. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, guys, if you like this podcast, please do me a little favor. Take a second and subscribe on iTunes and then screenshot this podcast. Give it a share in social media and tell your friends what you think. And hey, don't forget to tag me so that I can thank you for helping me spread the word. Thanks so much. And I will talk to you next week.